0: If you would please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Find the second chapter of Ephesians. While you're looking there, I want to say I'm really thankful for the way the Lord is working in our church. Uh, I'm happy to see Jeff and Melissa, our newest members that just joined this Sunday. And uh, I think the Lord is working among us. I have an appointment on Friday to talk to another couple that are interested in church membership. We have another couple that's on vacation right now, and as soon as they get back, they want to talk to me about becoming members of the church. So we just thank the Lord for uh, the way He's blessing us, and, and uh, we want to do God's will. Tonight I'm going to preach about the church, and I'm going to warn you up front that I'm going to preach a Baptist message tonight. And uh, I may offend somebody, I don't know, but I'm going to preach a Baptist message, and I'm going to preach a, a message... Uh, When I say Baptist, I mean an old-time Baptist message. I'm going to talk about what Baptists have believed and should still be believing about the Lord's Church. And actually, I'm going to preach uh, three messages on these last four verses of the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. And the title of the message is God's Beautiful Building. And all three messages, uh, well, it's one long message, so I'm not going to be able to finish it all tonight. But a three-part message on God's beautiful building. The end of the second chapter is the revelation of the church. Now, Paul has brought us in the second chapter from uh, death and divisiveness into life and unification through the work of the Trinity. And, of course, that's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we come down to the end of this chapter, Paul talks to us about God's plan and program for the world. And I'm talking about for the world in this New Testament era in which we live. And so God's plan is the church. God's plan is His church, and I don't believe that there's any institution on the face of this earth that's like God's church. God has only given us two divine institutions. Those are the home and the church. And there's only one way for you and me as Christians in this world today to serve God effectively and to serve God in the right way, and that's to be a member of the Lord's church. So I don't believe that church membership is optional for Christians, Christians should be a member of the lord 's Church because God says that we are to fellowship with one another and we are to carry out god 's plan for the world, and it has to be done through the church Now, I like to call myself a church man you shouldn 't have any trouble believing that I believe in the church, and I believe in the local church i don 't believe in some universal invisible monstrosity that everybody just becomes a, a part of the moment they get saved, and really nobody has an accountability. I believe in a local church, and I believe the local church is God's beautiful building. Christ formed the church, he's the head of the church, and the people in the church are the living stones that are built up into a spiritual house to magnify and worship God in the church. So I don't believe that God has, uh, in this present time, any other means by which his work is done in the world. I don't think that anybody has the authority to preach God's word except God's church. I don't think that anybody has the right to propagate a gospel but the Lord's church. Now, we have lots of religious confusion in the world today because there are a lot of people who are trying to do uh, God's work and ignore the church. And I would tell you they're not doing God's work God's way. If they are, in fact, at all doing God's work. So from the scriptures tonight, I want us to talk about God's beautiful building. And these scriptures give us the metaphor of a building to represent the church. That's what Paul calls it. So that's how we're going to talk about it tonight, God's beautiful building. So if you'll stand with me, please, we're going to look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. In the last four verses, beginning of verse number 19 of this uh, second chapter. Now, therefore... Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. Most of all, Lord, tonight we thank you for your church. And I thank you, Lord, for the members of your church that are present tonight and the opportunity to preach to your people. So I just ask you, Lord, that you'd bless in this message. Help us to learn something from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. These are actually the same scriptures that we looked at last week in the lesson, and I preached a little bit different type of message. Last week, and in these last four verses, we saw the progressive picture that Paul gives us when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the progression of a person who comes to know Christ. And he first of all tells us that we are citizens of a heavenly country. Then he tells us that when we get saved, we become a part of God's family. But then he brings us to the most intimate relationship, the highest expression of our relationship with Christ, and that is the church. Then, of course, he goes on, and I think we can also learn something from this about the bride of Christ, that the faithful members of the Lord's church become the bride of Christ. But as I stated to you before uh, in that last lesson, that I believe that all saved people are not automatically placed into the church. Now, automatically, when we become Christians, we do become a part of God's kingdom. We automatically become a part of God's family, but we don't automatically become a part of God's church. What a Christian needs to do, a faithful Christian, he must take this extra step, and that is to join himself to the local church, to a local New Testament church, and that's the only way that we become a part of God's church. Now, the church is a very peculiar institution. There are lots of people who put a sign out front of their buildings, and they say this is a church, or they call themselves such and such church, but there is a difference between a true church and a false church. The other day I was speaking to a man that uh, I think uh, in, in all respects probably he's, he's a good Baptist person. But I really do believe that he was an error about the church. Now this man happened to be a missionary. Maybe you're not aware of it, but whenever a missionary calls us and wants to present their work, we have now about a five, six, seven, eight-page form that they have to fill out. And they have to go through the whole doctrinal thing about what they believe and what they don't believe. Well, I received this man's uh, doctrinal statement back, and I began to read the answers to the questions that we posed. And I saw some things that I didn't agree with. And so when he called me, we began to discuss some of these things where we have disagreements. Now, this man was a Baptist, but he believed that a person uh, could preach rightly on salvation, a church could preach rightly about salvation, but it may be that many of the other doctrines that they hold are not actually uh, in agreement with Baptist churches. In other words, he is saying that a church... Uh, could call themselves a church if they were wrong about baptism, if they were wrong about the Lord's Supper, if they were wrong about the polity, or that means the government of the church, how a church should be governed. They could have all of these things wrong, and they may have many differences of opinion on other aspects of the faith and other doctrines of the Bible, and yet they could still call themselves a church. Now, I don't believe that that's right. And I think that all you have to do to prove that it's not right is to go to the book of Revelation... Look at those, uh, the second and third chapter of Revelation where Jesus is speaking to the churches and you'll find out there that there were some doctrinal problems in those churches. And there were some things that had to be straightened up or else those churches became uh, in danger of losing their status as one of the Lord's churches. And there's one thing that I notice about reading those two chapters that there's nothing in there that says any of those churches had a problem with salvation by grace. Evidently, they didn't have that problem. They believed in that. But there were other problems that they had, other doctrines that they didn't hold correctly. And the Lord said, you're going to have to straighten these things up or I'm going to remove your candlestick from you. And so Christ rebuked them. And I don't believe that a church can be a true church unless it's constituted under New Testament principles. It must have New Testament principles. Polity, it must observe New Testament ordinances and observe them in the right way, and that seems to me to be the very basic requirements that a group would have to have to call themselves a church. And so I believe that we can look at all these different areas of doctrine, and I have no problem tonight telling you that I believe according to the New Testament, a New Testament church is one that has baptistic interpretations of Scripture. Now I want to begin our study tonight with verse number twenty. Where Paul writes, "...and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone." Now the first thing that I'd like for us to look at tonight is the foundation of the church. This is God's beautiful building, and everybody knows that to have a building that's built correctly, a building that will stand, the building must have a solid foundation." Now, you can start a building, and, and you can build any type of building it is, maybe a house, maybe an office building, or even a church building like we have here. And if you don't lay the foundation of that building right, then you're going to have a problem all the way up to the roof. Years ago, I was working in foundation work, and I remember that we put a footing in for a house, and the crew that uh, one of my crews uh, poured concrete for the footing of a house, and they didn't get the concrete level in one spot. Right in the front of the house where the door would go. Now, not in the foundation, of course, but when the house is built, this is where the door would go. But right in the area in the front of the house, they left the concrete about two inches high. They didn't rake it down so it would be level, so they left it two inches high. The mason came along and he started to lay the block on the, on the footing and, and he, didn't, he didn't check it to see if it was all level. So he laid his block right across that two-inch high spot. Then when he got done, he didn't even check his own block wall to see if it was level. Next along comes the carpenter. And the carpenter put the plate on top of the block wall in order to start the building, and he didn't check it either. And they didn't find this two-inch mistake until they got to the second floor of the house and realized they were having problems. Now, you know, there was only one way to correct that problem. That was to go all the way back down to the foundation, to go back to the very beginning and try to correct it there. Now, the problem is when they started to build this house with that two-inch high spot right where the door went, you can imagine what happened. The door wouldn't close. The door wouldn't work right. So they've got a problem with the house. And it can only be corrected by going to the foundation. And that is the very same thing with the church. You, if a church is not built upon the foundation, if it's not right, if that foundation is not right, there's going to be problems all the way through. And the only way that you can correct those kind of errors, whatever they may be, you have to go right back to the foundation. And the foundation must be laid correctly. And I'm afraid today that we have many churches, they have the building up, and of course I'm not speaking about the physical building, but they have their doctrinal positions built up. They have their church that they're building. They keep on building, but they never got the foundation right. They've got problems in their church. So here Paul talks about the foundation of the church, and the church is not a true church unless the foundation is right. So how do we determine whether a church is a true church? Well, there's two main points that I want to talk about regarding the foundation. And I'm actually only going to be able to cover the first main point tonight. I'll come back next week and talk about it more. But first of all, in order for a church to be a true church, it must have the right founders. Now, you'll notice here that I put this in the plural. But I want you to understand this, that Jesus Christ himself alone is the founder of the church. But when I say founders here... The reason I use it in the plural is because in the first century, the church was in the process of being built. Jesus founded it, but then Jesus left the world. And Jesus left the church to the apostles and the prophets, and we began, they began to build the church based upon the doctrines that were revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. But I don't want anyone to make this mistake. When I talk about the founding of the church, though, I believe that the church is built upon none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the foundation of the church is laid by the founders, and we have no doubt the Bible teaches us that Jesus is foremost in this foundation. Now, in this verse that we just read, he's called the chief cornerstone. So let's talk about that. Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, perhaps we should define what a cornerstone is. Well, this is the definition that's quoted by Martin Lloyd Jones. He says, A cornerstone is a primary foundation stone at the angle of the structure by which the architect fixes a standard for the bearings of the walls and the cross walls throughout. Now, I want you to notice, particularly in that definition, these words fixes a standard. And that means that the foundation stone, this cornerstone, is the standard for all of the other stones. And when that stone is laid and it's true, it's the standard for all of the others. And all the walls and the elevation of the building proceed from that cornerstone. And when all the walls are perfectly laid out according to the cornerstone, everything perfectly matches... And everything works out and matches the cornerstone. Now, that's what Jesus is to the church. He is the cornerstone. And everything has to perfectly match Jesus Christ in order to be a true church as that building goes up. And so anything that doesn't match the cornerstone cannot be a part of the building. And any time that you start with a mistake in that foundation, as I said just a moment ago, you will perpetuate that mistake all the way through. It doesn't get better. It has to be corrected right with the foundation. So who's the standard? Jesus is the standard. And everything in this building is supported by this chief cornerstone, and that's Jesus. So the foundation, the first cornerstone that's laid is Jesus. Now that means that anything that came after Jesus... Anyone who came after him could not be the cornerstone. Anything that man starts afterwards, anything or organization that calls itself a church that started after Jesus became the cornerstone, that can't be a true church. And if you'll look at the history of churches today, you'll find that a lot of them started too late to be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholics cannot claim to be the true church because they started after Jesus. Now, true history tells us that Roman Catholicism didn't get its start until 350 to 500 years after Jesus. And that is simply too late to be the church that Jesus started. All of the Protestant denominations started too late to be the true churches of Jesus. Now, each of these Protestant churches has a man as its founder. Whether it's Henry VIII, whether it's Luther or Calvin or Wesley or any of the others, they started too late to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I believe is that the church of Jesus Christ has been in existence perpetually since the time that Jesus founded it. And there never has been a time when the church apostatized to the point that we could not recognize a true church in the world at any given time. I also want to mention that the church was founded during Christ's personal ministry. Now, the church was in existence before Jesus was crucified. And what does that mean? It means that it was here before the day of Pentecost. When Jesus called out his 12 disciples, he was the founder, they were the followers, and they became the first members of the Lord's church. Now, there are many, many people today who believe that the church was not formed until Pentecost. And you'll read that in almost all uh, church literature. Uh, Many of the churches have this in their literature, that the church was founded on Pentecost. But you know, that'd be very strange because in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave instructions concerning the church. In verses 15 through 17, Jesus was talking about discipline in the church. And do you know there's not one indication in those scriptures that Jesus was talking about something that was yet future? The church was already in existence. It existed with him and his apostles. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, "...upon this rock I will build my church." In Acts chapter 1... The Bible tells us there, there were 120 disciples that were already meeting in the upper room. And that was before Pentecost. And you know what they were doing? They had a business meeting. They were meeting there to choose an apostle to replace Judas. And so these 12 apostles and those 120 people who had gathered there, those represented the church of the Lord Jesus Christ before the day of Pentecost. And then in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Bible tells us that there were 3,000 people who got saved and baptized. And the Bible says they were added unto them. And what were they added to? They were added to the Lord's church. And so they were added in the church, and that means there must have been a church in existence before Pentecost. Now you see, the only thing that the church received on the day of Pentecost was the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so the day of Pentecost is the day that the church became empowered. It's not the day that the church was created. So I want you to write this down as part of your lesson tonight. The church did not begin on the day of Pentecost. And you need to make a note of that and remember it. But I also want you to notice as we think about Jesus being the chief cornerstone, and we've already mentioned this, that Jesus is the standard. He's the standard that we go by. So let's put that down too. Jesus is the standard by which the church is measured. Now, unfortunately, there aren't many people who like to follow the standard. You'll notice in the scriptures that Jesus was at first rejected as the cornerstone. There are three places in the Gospels that Jesus talks about that. I want to read one of them to you in Luke chapter 20, verse 17. And he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written, The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now Jesus at first was rejected by the Jews as being the head of the church. And that's really the whole reason why we're reading the book of Ephesians tonight. That's why we're studying this particular thing, because the Jews had rejected them, him. But the, the Jews uh, had all the rights, they had all the privileges, but they weren't anywhere near God. They weren't any closer to God than the worst of the Gentile heathens were. And that's because they were dead in trespasses and sin. They had a spiritual condition that was no different than the Gentile people. And folks, when somebody is dead, it really doesn't matter what you died from. I mean, if you step out on the street in front of a bus and get run over, you're dead. But that's no different if you linger for years and die of some kind of disease. You're still dead. There's no difference in dead. Dead is dead. And that's the way the Jews were. They had all these things. And you might say they they died a slow, lingering death for years and centuries and centuries. But they were still spiritually dead. But now that the foundation stone is laid and Jesus has become the head of the corner, there still aren't a lot of people who want to follow the standard. And that's because the standards are rigid. It's because the standards are tough to live by sometimes. And so what we try to do is we try to establish another standard. We want to live by our standards. And one of the things that Christians do not want to do is to live by the standard of full commitment to Jesus Christ. That's difficult. That's difficult. But let me go back here to something that I mentioned before. This Baptist fellow that I was talking to, this missionary, uh, seemed to think that a church could be a church without meeting all of the standards. So let me give you one example. Let, let's talk about the standard of baptism. Now, I think the, church, uh, the Bible is very clear about what baptism is. Baptism is a symbol of what takes place in your heart. The believer has died to his old way of life. He's risen to walk in new life in Jesus. And that's very clear to us from reading Romans chapter 6. Baptism also means that the person believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that as Christ was resurrected, so the believer will be resurrected as well. Now, there's only one way that we can picture that biblically, and that's through immersion. The word uh, baptized in the Bible means to immerse. And baptism is the first act of obedience that every Christian ought to do. So it should be very clear to us the importance of baptism. So baptism is a very basic doctrine. According to Acts 2.41 and 1 Corinthians 12.13, the Bible's teaching us that baptism is our entrance into the church. So the question would be, how would it be possible to have a church if you don't have properly baptized people? You can't have a church because that is a standard. Baptism is a standard. So baptism by sprinkling is wrong. And if you were baptized in the wrong way, or if you were baptized for the wrong reason, then you're an unbaptized person. And unbaptized people cannot be in the church because that doesn't meet the standard. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us this, that any church that baptizes by sprinkling or baptizes for the purpose of regeneration or saving a person is baptizing wrongly, and they don't meet the standard. Now, you may say that's harsh. That's awful narrow-minded. And so are you saying, then, that Presbyterians and Methodists and churches of Christ and Lutherans are not true churches? That's exactly what I'm saying. Only I'm not saying it. The Bible is saying, and that's because it doesn't meet the standard. And whatever does not meet the standard cannot be a part of the building. What about other issues? Well, certainly... A true church would have to meet the standard on the doctrine of salvation. That seems very basic to us, doesn't it? I mean, you'd have to believe rightly about salvation to have a church. That's not hard for us to figure out. Now, we just studied right here in the second chapter that salvation is by grace through faith alone. There isn't any work that's involved in our salvation. But then you might ask the question, but aren't there some people who believe that you're saved by grace, but then you're kept saved by your works? Yes, some people do believe that. Does that meet the standard? No, it doesn't. That's because a person who says that he believes in salvation by grace does not understand salvation by grace if he thinks that he gets saved, but then he has to make payments on his salvation to stay saved. And so anybody who would believe that you could lose your salvation hasn't met the standard. You know, that takes in a lot of other groups that we could exclude, I think, from being true churches. So what about the baptism of those churches? Well, this is the very reason why we don't accept it. That's why we say that we'll not take baptism from a church that teaches that a person can be lost because baptism is a church ordinance. And any organization that doesn't meet God's standard can't be a true church. And so, therefore, that church would not have the right to baptize. I told you I'm going to preach a Baptist sermon tonight. Do you see how that fits together? I mean, this is reason, this is justification for the things that we do. We just don't do things arbitrarily. We believe in living by the standard. And we are looking for true churches that adhere to a New Testament standard. So Jesus, that's the standard by which the church is measured. We measure it by the teachings of Jesus, by the life of Jesus. And when we don't meet the standard, then we're not true churches of the Lord. Now, while I'm on this issue of standards, I want to tell you something that I don't mean. Because there are many standards that are preferential items. And many standards that aren't clearly outlined in the Scriptures. And these things are not things to decide or distinguish between true churches and false churches. I'm talking about preferential issues. And preferences come in all shapes and sizes. A preference might be the way that we arrange our services. Or even how many services that we have during the week. And you know, for some people, that's a test of fellowship. That's a preference, though. Because in the Scriptures, we're not told how to arrange our service, how it ought to run. The Bible doesn't tell us how many times that we ought to have services. I know this, we ought to meet on Sunday because that's a New Testament precedent. But it doesn't say how many times to meet on Sunday. But some people make that a test of fellowship. But that's simply a preference. If it's not in the Scriptures, it's a preference. A preference can be this screen behind me. And you know there's some people who call us accursed because we put the words of the hymn up on the screen. And that's their test of fellowship. And they'll call you a heretic in a heartbeat if you do this. You've got to sing out of a hymn book. That's what they say. You know, I love hymn books. I won't deny that. I love hymn books. But the last time that I checked, the hymn book's not inspired. And the last time that I checked, there aren't any hymn books in the Bible. So that becomes a preference, and that is not a standard to judge between a true church and a false church. Music is a preference. I think that there is heathenish and devilish music that ought not to be in the church, but I don't think because a piece of music may have a drum in it or a guitar or any other instrument that that particularly makes it ungodly. That is a preference, not a doctrinal standard. Here's something I think will surprise you. But uh, recently, I shared this with a couple of people in the church. I received a letter from Tim Ekno, our missionary to uh, Southeast Asia. And he was writing me about one of his churches that dropped support. And the pastor of this church gave him one of the reasons. He gave him several reasons. I won't go into all of it. But you know one of the reasons why this church dropped his support? The pastor said, I notice in your picture that you have a goatee. And a goatee is a symbol that there are other things that are wrong. And so that church dropped his support. I wonder what some people are thinking. Where, where do you get that kind of stuff? And there are churches who make these things a test of fellowship. And, they, and I said, they'll bet call you heretical in a heartbeat if you disagree with them. Now, I may not like some of those things. I'm not talking about Brother Eck, no, But I, I may not like some things that churches do. What they, how they conduct themselves and their services, that may not be my cup of tea but it's a preference. And I'm not going to call somebody a true church or a false church based upon some preference that somebody has. Now, I, I've always said this, that the biggest enemy of the church is the brethren. And I think that that's true. Now, why do we have all these things? Why do we have these preferential issues that, that really, you know, just crawl all over people? And then and you got, you've got to do it my way. You know why? Because that's a method of control. Pastors and churches want to control people, and that's the method that they use to do it. If you don't think like I do, if you don't look like I do, if you don't do as I do, then you must be from the devil. But that's not in the Bible. So what I say is that a church has to conform to the cornerstone and not to the other stones. Jesus is the cornerstone, and we're to conform to him. He's the only standard, and that's the only one by which we should be measured. But now I want to go on to the next piece of the foundation, and that's the apostles. So secondly, under the founders, the apostles are attached to the cornerstone. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that Jesus began the church with the 12 original disciples. And in verse number 20, he mentions the apostles. And so to understand the foundation of the church, we have to really know who the apostles are. What are apostles? Well, the apostles that I think that he's referring to are the 12. The 12 that originally were with Jesus. Now, I say 12, but I want you to remember this, that Judas was a false disciple. He wasn't one of the 12 in that sense. Now, Judas was replaced by Matthias. In Acts chapter 1, we have a scripture that gives us the criteria for what makes an apostle. So I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 1, if you would, please. And we're going to look at the selection of Matthias as an apostle. And this gives us the criteria by which a person can be called an apostle. Now, Acts chapter 1, verse number 15, it says, And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names were about 120, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, who was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now, this man, that's speaking of Judas... This man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And, of course, that's referring to Judas when he hanged himself. Verse 19, And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Akledema, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was named Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and... Apostleship, notice that, from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots and the lot fell upon Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now in that scripture, we have three qualifications that are given for an apostle. Number one is an apostle must have seen Jesus. Now verse number 21 says that for a person to be chosen as an apostle, he must have accompanied, accompanied with them. That means he must have walked with them ...when Jesus was here. So this is a person who must have seen Jesus. Secondly, an apostle must have the baptism of John. Verse 22 says, "...beginning from the baptism of John." So I believe that that's an indication... ...that all 12 of the apostles had been baptized by John... ...just as Jesus was baptized. Now remember that Jesus walked 40 miles... ...to be baptized by John the Baptist. And if Jesus put such importance on the baptism of John it's doubtful that his disciples wouldn't have done the same thing that Jesus did. And that scripture is an indication that all of them were baptized by John the Baptist. And here they say, this must be someone who accompanied with us from the baptism of John. The third requirement, an apostle must have witnessed the resurrection. Verse 22 also says, beginning from the baptism of John, unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us, ...of his resurrection. And so to be numbered among the twelve... ...and to be a foundation stone in the church... ...it requires that this person must have seen Jesus... ...they must have been baptized by John the Baptist... ...and they must have personally witnessed the resurrection. Now let's sidetrack for just a moment... ...and let's talk about Paul... ...because there's lots of differences of opinion about Paul. Is Paul the apostle who replaced uh, Judas... ...or is Matthias the apostle who replaced him? Now some people will say... Peter had no right at all to have this meeting. Only Jesus can choose an apostle, so Peter had no right to call the meeting. But I don't notice anywhere in the Scriptures where Peter was rebuked for what he did. And also in that Scripture, there's an indication that God is the one who directed the outcome of it. So I don't think that we can say that this was a wrong kind of meeting. So how could Paul be an apostle? Does he meet this criteria? Well, he doesn't meet the criteria to be the same kind of a building block that we have here of these 12 apostles. Because first, he didn't personally walk with Jesus. Secondly, he didn't have the baptism of John. And thirdly, he didn't witness the resurrection. Now, we do know that later he met Jesus, he saw Jesus, and Jesus spoke to him. But that was on the road to Damascus. So I believe that Paul comes under our next heading as a foundation stone. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But in Revelation 21, verse 14, we read about the foundation of the New Jerusalem. There's something that's said here. Uh, The New Jerusalem, of course, is the eternal city of God. And it says in that 14th verse of Revelation 21, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of argument over which 12 names are in this foundation. I personally believe it's the original 11 plus Matthias. But let's go back and let's talk about these 12 apostles just a minute as the foundation of the church. And so by talking about the qualifications or thinking about the qualifications I just mentioned, I think there's one statement that we can make for sure. Without doubt, we can make this statement. There are no modern-day apostles. Now, there's some people running around today who call themselves apostles, but there's not anyone today who meets these qualifications. And so it's very clear to us that after the death of the original apostles in the first century, that there are no more apostles. The office of the apostles ceased in the church. So when you lay a foundation of something, you don't repeatedly lay the foundation. The foundation is laid one time. You build upon it. You may build as many stories as you want to, but the foundation gets laid one time. And there's only one foundation of the church, and that stopped with Jesus and the apostles. Now, when the Pope claims that he is a successor to the apostles and that he derives his authority from the apostleship, friends, the Pope is a liar. He does not succeed the apostles because there is no such thing as apostolic succession. He doesn't derive his authority from Peter because Peter was never a Pope and Peter never heard of anything like a Pope. Peter would never even have ascribed to himself the things that the Pope claims. Now, in Matthew 16:18, Jesus said, And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus was not telling Peter that he was building the church upon him. He's saying, Peter, you are a small stone, but on this massive stone, upon the massive rock, upon myself, I'm going to build my church. Now, today in Roman Catholicism and all throughout their history, the Roman Catholic Church has continually tried to add to the foundation. They have beliefs that are not biblical, things that have no connection to anything that Jesus or the apostles said. Folks, I don't have any authority, you don't have any authority, and the Roman Catholic Church does not have the authority to add to the Word of God or to add to this foundation. It doesn't matter what I think, what you think, or what anybody thinks. The only thing that matters is what Jesus and the apostles said. Because they're the foundation of the church. But then Paul goes on and he mentions one other part of the foundation. He says, and prophets. So the third founders, the prophets, are attached to the cornerstone. Now, we've, we, we've defined what an apostle is. So now we need to define what a prophet is. And there's also some controversy about what Paul means by prophets. And just about everybody agrees that when it speaks of prophets, it's speaking of Old Testament prophets who who, uh, prophesied of the coming of Jesus. And so the words that they preached, the truths that they taught, the things that they said, that was built into the foundational building blocks of the church. But I also believe that it's talking about something else here. I think he's also talking about New Testament prophets. And there are two types of New Testament prophets. One type of New Testament prophet is one that was given direct revelation from the Word of God. Agabus was that kind of a prophet. In Acts chapter 11 and Acts 28, we have the prophet Agabus, and we talked about him in the study of Acts. There's also another designation for prophets in the Scriptures, and that is simply somebody who preaches the Word of God. That person is called a prophet. So based upon that definition, you would be able to call me a prophet. I'm not going to use prophet for myself. I'm not going to use that term. It's not common to use it. So, but a prophet is simply somebody who preaches the word. But I think what Paul is talking about here when he says it's built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the apostles, and the prophets, he's speaking about the prophets that were given special revela- revelation. And I believe that Paul was a prophet that was given special revelation. So I think that Paul becomes a building block of the church one of the one of the foundation stones because of being a prophet, not necessarily because of being an apostle. So what I'm saying here is that Paul received instruction from the Holy Spirit. He received the words of God that he wrote down in Scripture. And we learn from 2 Peter chapter 2 that Peter considered what Paul wrote to be scripture. He recognized what Paul wrote as being the very words of God. So when we talk about prophets, we've got Old Testament prophets. Meanwhile, <laughs> <laughs> everybody okay? <laughs> think you need to clear out? I shall go on and finish then. That was either the devil or the pope i don 't know which one have did that well we 're almost done very very quickly we 'll finish up here. The prophets that we 're talking about here mainly then I think are New Testament prophets. And what we learn from this is that the prophets were given special revelation. But just like we don't have apostles today, we also don't have prophets that are given special revelation. So there is no such thing as new revelation that's given to the church today. Ever since the word of God was completed, we have all that God wants us to know. We have all the foundational stones, all the building blocks, all the information that we need as far as the church is concerned and as far as God's will for this world is concerned. And so we don't have any more revelations. Uh, Nothing is given to us directly from God in that way anymore. Now, I want to finish up tonight. We'll come back to this next week. But let me finish up by saying this. That the church is built upon the foundational stones of these men. But more importantly, it's built upon the church. The church is built upon the doctrine that they taught. So here's the last statement that we have your listening sheet tonight. There is no new doctrine for New Testament churches. Now not only is there no new doctrine, but there's really only one body of truth and the Bible describes this as the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Next week we'll come back and we'll finish up that thought we'll talk about the foundation of the church a little bit more and we'll discuss God's beautiful building and we hope this building is here when we come back on Sunday. But thank the Lord tonight if you are a member of the Lord's church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. We ask you, Lord, you'd uh, help us in this incident that we've had, that uh, you would keep people safe. We pray for your blessing and your watch care over us. Guide us and direct us in all that we do and bring us uh, back to your house on Sunday. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.